Where does the Easter Bunny work during the off-season? At IHOP! <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to Starting Sustainability. This is episode 117 and I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. This week I have a couple of topics to discuss. We're going to talk about Easter switches and how to celebrate Easter sustainably, as well as biodiesel and fuel saving options. I know very two different polar <laughs> opposite topics. But before we get into that, I would like to catch up with Kaylin. What has been going on in my world these past two weeks? Um, well, packing and sorting and donating, selling, more packing, kids unpacking, repacking what the kids just unpacked. That's pretty much been my life for the last two weeks. Oh, and I did manage to squeeze in the Tinder Swindler on Netflix. Now, is the Tinder Swindler related to sustainability in any way, shape, or form? Nope. Not at all, but it was extremely eye-opening if you haven't seen it. And since I only get to watch Netflix in like 10 minute chunks, <laughs> actually I'm pretty sure most of the country's already seen the Tinder Swindler and I'm just now getting around to it. But anyways, it was very eye-opening to witness the cons this guy would put together and the lengths he would go to to make his con a reality to convince these girls to give him so much money. It was just... It was gut-wrenching and sad and infuriating because in the end, he only served five months in jail and he's back to living a luxury lifestyle. No justice was really served in my opinion. So since I was so angry, I then switched it over to Bridgerton season two and absolutely love that. <laughs> that has cheered me up quite a bit. And at work, we are reopening the last of our six cafes, which is very exciting. And everybody who has been working from home, all of the office workers who have been working home for the last two years, they are returning on April 4th. So it has yet again been quite a madhouse, but we are getting through it one day at a time. We will now switch it over to the main topic, the first of the two main topics, which is Easter switches and how to have a sustainable Easter. And I guess I should clarify the reason that I have two different topics this week is because I was very passionate about both of them. I think it's very important to share how to have a sustainable Easter, especially since Easter is literally right around the corner, but also fuel prices are going up quite a bit and I wanted to address different ways that you could be conservative with your fuel consumption and save money. So even though they're very different topics, I still wanted to cram them all into one session. I guess that's the difference because when I had a weekly podcast, when I had time for a weekly podcast, then I could have just done Easter this week and fuel saving things the next week. But since it's now every other week and we're going to be moving over Easter weekend, so I'm trying to get work ahead in advance on that as well. I just wanted to go ahead and fit both main topics into one episode. Yes, here it is. Easter time. And what can you do to be more sustainable this Easter? The first is to think outside the basket and use what you already have. You can use an old basket, a bucket, a pillowcase, a reusable produce bag, toiletry bags, shoe boxes that you can let your kids decorate. There are so many things. It doesn't have to be a plastic Easter basket that you get from the store. There's many, many different items that you can use as a vessel for your kids to collect their Easter eggs. The next part is Easter grass. 
Now that plastic shredded grass, it gets all over the place and it's plastic. So it's not breaking down or going away. It just makes a huge mess that never goes away. <laughs> what you can do instead is use shredded paper or my preference, just skip the grass altogether and also avoid the mess. <laughs> but another option that we learned about last year is to make what they call a living Easter basket. Now this is pretty cool. So go ahead and start now, start getting ready. You do have time, time is on your side. And you can do this with your kids. It's a quick, simple, little easy science experiment. And it's a nice little lesson about growing plants in nature. You can use any type of planting container that you want. If you already have a plastic Easter basket or even an Easter bucket, you can use that. You're just gonna place potting soil in the basket or bucket container about halfway to three quarters full and then sprinkle wheatgrass seeds on top. Then you add water and place it in the windowsill for sunlight and wait. In about four days, you're gonna start seeing the seeds germinate, and within one week, you're gonna have a full basket of grass, which is really cool. And then what do you do with it after Easter? Well, it's wheatgrass. You can throw it in a smoothie if you want. You can add it to your garden. You can do lots of different things. When it comes to the candies and the sweet treats to fill up your Easter baskets, try to find some fair trade chocolate or a local chocolatier or at least chocolate wrapped in foil. And don't forget to recycle the aluminum foil, but really try to avoid any candies or sweet treats that are covered in plastic. That's really the goal here if we can do that. And then the last thing would be eggs. You kinda need eggs for Easter, huh? Let's buy local eggs if you're able to or at least get the eggs at the store that come in a cardboard container versus the styrofoam container. And if you're using the plastic eggs that you can put little treats in, that's fine. We're just going to keep them and reuse them over and over as long as possible. One of the most fun activities would be dyeing the Easter eggs. And of course you can get kits at the store where you can dye the eggs. And those are again, plastic, <laughs> all plastic that never breaks down or goes away. If you already have a kit, we've got a kit from literally years ago. It was just my husband and I, I think that kit's probably eight years old. And we use the same kit over and over and you can just buy little dye packs, just the replaceable dye tablets to use. But another thing that I learned about is different ways that you can make a natural Easter egg dye. Utilizing natural food items and other household kitchen staples that you basically have on hand already. Side note, and this is my parenting tip for you. Last year, my husband was on call and I was brave enough to have my two kiddos dye Easter eggs at the kitchen table. And I was a nervous wreck the entire time because I was so sure they're going to spill the dye all over the place. I had newspaper laid down and everything, but I was just still very anxious about the whole thing. We ended up being okay. We did pretty well. There was only a couple of small spills. <laughs> Afterwards, someone had mentioned dyeing Easter eggs in the bathtub, which I have definitely taken that little golden piece of information and locked away in my brain for this year. We're gonna be dying Easter eggs in the bathtub. That way, if it spill does happen, it just goes right on down the drain. And if the kids get the dye all over them, then we just turn on the water and wash it off. <laughs> so yes, we are definitely doing that this year. Although we are actually moving from one house to the next over Easter weekend. So I'm not really sure how or when we're going to celebrate. We're just gonna have to get creative, but we're, I'm still working on that part. Okay, back on track. I'm going to share the list of different recipes to create the various colors to dye your Easter eggs. Since these are natural, it is definitely a little bit of a longer process, 
But in the end, the longer you leave the eggs in the dye, the brighter the color will be. And it even recommends actually leaving them in the jars of dye overnight if you want really bold and vibrant colors. Otherwise, you can keep the time short and just have really pretty pastel colors, which is also the color palette of Easter. Everything is pastel, so it works out perfectly. For dyeing natural Easter eggs, it is recommended to get the large wide mouth ball glass mason jars. And then you can fit about six eggs in each jar. So that way you can have all the eggs in there at once and let them soak for a while before you pull them out or put them in the fridge overnight and be done the next day. Okay, if you're ready, grab your pen and paper and take some notes. All of these recipes for the different colors, they basically are, it's the same template. It's always gonna be two cups of water and one or two tablespoons of vinegar. So I will go through each one. For the color blue, you'll take a head of red cabbage and you can cut it up into chunks, add it to two cups of boiling water, and then stir in one tablespoon of vinegar, let it cool down, remove the cabbage, like just with a little slotted spoon, and pour it into the glass jar, and then you can put your eggs in to soak. And the longer they're there, the brighter the blue will be. For the color green, you'll take six red onions and you're gonna peel the skin from them. So you just want the skin of the six red onions and you're gonna simmer it in two cups of water for about 15 minutes, strain it out again, add a tablespoon of white vinegar. For the color orange, you're gonna take the skin of six yellow onions this time, simmer it in two cups of water for about 15 minutes and add a tablespoon of white vinegar. For a red-orange color, we're gonna stir in four tablespoons of paprika into two cups of boiling water and add two tablespoons of white vinegar. For the color yellow, you're gonna stir in four tablespoons of turmeric or turmeric, turmeric. I work in food service and I still don't know how to say that spice properly. But you're gonna stir in four tablespoons of turmeric into two cups of boiling water and add one tablespoon white vinegar. And for the color pink, you're gonna take a medium-sized beet, cut it into chunks, add it into two cups of boiling water, stir in one tablespoon of vinegar. Again, any of the hot water, let them cool down before you pour it into the glass jar because hot water straight into a glass jar, you have a strong chance of the glass jar breaking and shattering on you. And then the very last one is lavender. You're just gonna mix two cups of grape juice with two tablespoons of vinegar. You don't even have to boil that one. And there you have it, a beautiful variety of natural dyes that you can make. Now you may be thinking, Kaylin, if I soak my eggs in onion, cabbage, beet, <laughs> water, they might taste a little funky. And this is a valid concern because I had the same thought. As long as the shell is intact, you'll be fine. But if the shell does get cracked and then the flavored dyed water gets in there, yeah, then it might affect the taste of the egg a little bit. But as long as the shell isn't cracked, you don't have to worry about absorbing any of the flavors. And then this is my dietitian food safety moment. Your hard-boiled eggs, once they are dyed, they can be stored in your refrigerator for up to one week. That is it. Just one week. I know people who keep them there much longer, and that is really not safe. <laughs> And there you have it, super simple switches that you could do to have a sustainable Easter for you and your family. Now we will transition over to addressing our second topic of the day, which is the gas crisis. So with the ever increasing gas prices, I started thinking about ways to save money on gas 
Now, I have a grocery chain near me called Kroger, and they offer fuel points, and I don't normally shop at Kroger because they're on the other side of town. I have a Meyer right beside me, and my first thought was, I better change grocery stores and download all the gas apps to help save money on gas. <laughs> but for a brief moment, it did make sense to drive all the way to the other side of town so I could save a few cents per gallon on gas. Yes, I do have a bike, and I could ride that everywhere, and that would really save me the most amount of money on gas. However, that's really just not a logical reality in my current state. I've got two kids, and I have to take them to daycare every morning. I work 35 miles away. There's no way I'm going to ride my bike 35 miles, but you can get an e-bike. Okay, well, I still got to out where to put these car seats on the back of the bike. And I don't know about you guys, but it was 23 degrees this morning. So riding an e-bike is not exactly exciting to me when it is this cold for that long of a duration. Plus, I still have to do a bunch of errands to take care of my family, like grocery shopping. So it just, the e-bike thing doesn't work. So that's why I'm back on how I can reduce fuel and be efficient with my fuel. But hey, if you are one of those people that has an e-bike and you get to ride it everywhere, great for you. Fantastic. Keep it up. I'm very proud of you, slightly jealous of you, but also very excited for you. Since changing my grocery stores was not really a logical conclusion, I kept thinking and thinking, and I remembered a long time ago seeing a TV show, and I cannot remember the name of the show. I honestly don't have a clue <laughs> or much about it, but there were people in the show and they did something to convert their truck so that it could run on vegetable oil. And that was the only little piece of information that I could remember. So I didn't have much to go off of with searching on the internet. But what I did find was how you can make your own biodiesel fuel for a fraction of the cost of diesel fuel. So I looked into it and that was my inspiration for this episode. I mean, I could do this. I made my own broth, my own yogurt, bread. I've sewn up a variety of items like Halloween costumes and makeup removers. I've figured out cloth diapers and how to hang drywall, rip up carpet, and I can grow a freaking loofah. So surely I can make my own biodiesel fuel and save a ton of money. I read a few different articles, but the one that I'll be referencing the most for the rest of this episode is from backwoodshome.com. Now, making your own gas is not a new concept. Many off-grid people make their own fuel for farm tractors, diesel trucks, and backup generators. This was the movement of the Save the Earth people before electric vehicles really became a thing. And if you have an electric vehicle, fantastic, great, keep it, you're good to go. But if you have a vehicle with a diesel engine, then this could be an option. Do I have a vehicle with a diesel engine? No, not at all. But I still wanted to learn about this. <laughs> Now, when it comes to making your own fuel, like all hobbies, you can start off affordable and then upgrade your equipment later to become more refined. The good news is it actually is an easy process to make fuel and you only need four ingredients. This already sounds simpler than making a homemade broth. Clearly I can do this. The first ingredient you're going to need is cooking oil. Now you can buy this clean and ready to go by the gallons, but it's going to be very pricey. The best option is to find a restaurant with deep fryers, so basically any fast food place, and collect their dirty, discarded cooking oil. Restaurants will usually pay someone to haul away their oil. We do that in our own cafes. See, also I'm excited because I got the hookup with our cafes. <laughs> so it's like I can totally take the oil from there. 
But if you don't have the connection with cafes, then go out and talk to some fast food restaurants. And since they are used to paying somebody to haul away their oil, they'll probably be very excited to have you come along and take it away for free. They will very happily agree to that. Generally, they will have discarded oil in buckets or storage tanks, like in the back, because at the end of the day, they'll empty out their dirty oil and then put it in a storage tank outside in the back or something like that. And they'll have it already set for you. When you come to collect it, you'll have to bring five gallon buckets or something to haul the oil with. You can get a large 50 to 100 gallon tank and put it in the back of your truck. And then you can use a battery powered fuel pump and literally pump the oil from their storage tank into your tank in the back of your truck. So that's also a possibility depending on their setup. Once you have the oil, you will only need three other ingredients, methanol, also known as racing fuel, sodium hydroxide, commonly known as household lye, and water. That said, there are some major safety concerns that we really need to address. First, methanol, the racing fuel, is extremely flammable, but unlike most other flammable liquids, it does not have a visible flame when it burns. You may have watched any high-performance sports car racing when a member of the pit crew suddenly stops and drops and rolls around on the ground for no apparent reason. These cars are fueled by methanol and fuel spills are common during fast pit stops, which sometimes results in a crew member getting severely burned, even though you see no flames or smoke. Once it is mixed in with the lye, the resulting sodium methoxide will burn anywhere it touches bare skin. In addition, you will not realize you are being burned because it immediately kills all nerve endings. <laughs> it was at this point in the article that I decided I was not going to be making my own fuel. However, I just had to keep on reading. <laughs> because I wanted to gain the knowledge. The second safety concern. If you have ever used common household lye to open clogged drains or make soap, you know that lye is also very dangerous to your skin and gets extremely hot when poured into water. Lye will also quickly corrode aluminum, tin pans, zinc coatings, and most paints, so you can only use glass, stainless steel, or chemical grade polyethylene containers when handling these chemicals. And a final warning, when you mix methanol and lye, it forms vapors of sodium methoxide, and those are extremely dangerous to breathe. So your fuel making work area should be very well ventilated, preferably outside, or at least in an outside shed with the doors open, like if it's cold outside in the wintertime or a rainy day. And definitely have a fire extinguisher and a water hose already turned on nearby. <laughs> If you haven't been scared away yet, and you're still brave enough to go forward, there are two general categories of biodiesel making kits. The more simpler version is a no heating process, but it will result with a lower quality fuel. It is recommended to have a kit that heats if you are anywhere not tropical, basically. <laughs> so any place with a winter, you're going to need a heated kit. Before you can get started, all that used vegetable oil is going to have food debris in it, and it's gonna need to be cleaned. Most solids can be removed by first passing the used oil through a strainer as you fill the mixing tank. So it means like when you're pulling it from the restaurant, you can put it through a strainer before you even put it into your tank in the back of your truck. But there will still be like small particles and even water from cooking the frozen foods in the oil that will still need to be cleaned out. Heated biodiesel kits use a glass-lined electric hot water heater 
for the mixing tank. And the tank is modified by adding different piping and valve connections to the original hot, cold, and drainage openings. And this makes an excellent way to heat up the waste oil to 130 degrees Fahrenheit before starting, which will evaporate off that extra water in that waste oil. Once the oil is cleaned, you can add the chemicals. First, let's discuss buying the chemicals. Methanol is a popular fuel for auto racing, and high-performance engine shops and racetracks are a good place to purchase small quantities. Petroleum distributors usually sell methanol in larger 30 and 55-gallon drums. If you can afford to buy this much at one time, that's an option. Do not be surprised if you get a visit from the local sheriff, as this is the primary ingredient for methamphetamine, meth labs, <laughs> manufacturing illegal drugs. So make sure that they know who you are and what you're going to do with the methanol. This point here only validated my reasoning for not making my own fuel. I do not want to earn a reputation of being a meth manufacturer. Not at all. It is also a good idea to discuss your methanol storage plans with your county's fire marshal because volunteer firefighters do not expect to find drums full of highly toxic and potentially explosive chemicals when called to fight a fire in an old barn or garage. Most fire marshals will appreciate you considering the safety of their volunteers, who will be the first to respond if you have a very, very bad day. Again, reiterating the fact that if you choose to make your own fuel, you must be careful. Other than water, your last ingredient is lye, and you don't need very much. You actually only need very little, and so your grocery store is going to be your best source to purchase lye. When you mix the ingredients, your kit will come with two tanks, a small and a large. Methanol and lye will be mixed in the smaller tank and then be transferred into the larger mixing tank already containing the waste oil. Most biodiesel kits include at least one multi-use explosive-proof electric pump to fill the tanks, mix the liquids in the tanks, and drain the tanks, depending on which valves are open or closed. The actual testing, measuring, and mixing takes about one hour. Then you allow the chemical process to take place, which takes 24 hours. Most kits include a dial timer to shut off the mixing pump at the proper time, so you don't need to stand around and wait. As mentioned earlier, very little lye will be needed, but the actual amount of lye required will be slightly different for each batch of used cooking oil. If you add more than what is required of the lye, your mixing tank could end up turning into a gel-type soap. And if you use too little lye, only part of the cooking oil will be converted into biodiesel fuel, and the rest will be a large layer of glycerin that'll be on the bottom half of your mixing tank. Since determining how much lye to use is so critical, most biodiesel kits include a pH test kit for the waste oil, like those that you use to test pool water before adding chemicals. However, the testing of waste oil is slightly more detailed as it uses a process called titration. I don't know if you remember this from chemistry class. I barely do. I basically just recognize the word. I don't really remember this process at all. But this test requires samples to be accurately measured and mixed according to specific instructions before the resulting sample is tested for pH level. Entering the pH results on a mixing chart gives the exact weight of lye this particular batch of used cooking oil will require to fully convert to biodiesel. As a general guideline, most used cooking oil will require about six to seven grams of lye for each liter of used cooking oil. 
Vegetable oil will not combine directly with methanol, so the lye serves as a catalyst for this chemical reaction, and the amount required is critical to the success of the final product. This is why titration test is so important before starting every new batch. The final stage is a water wash, and this is to remove any remaining waste products. Regardless of how good you have measured and mixed, there will always be some unwanted trash that needs to be removed from the final product, including leftover lye, glycerin, soap, and unprocessed methanol. All of these waste products are water soluble and can be easily removed from the biodiesel fuel with a water wash. Basically, there are tiny misting spray nozzles located at the top of the mixing tank, and they're going to gently introduce water down onto the surface of the oil, because if you do it too vigorously, you're going to get all those little bubbles, you know, like when you have oil and water and you shake it up and you have all those little bubbles, and we don't want that. So we do the gentle misting process instead. And after a few hours, the water mist will migrate down through the biodiesel fuel and absorb the waste products before settling to the tank bottom, where you can manually drain it off. Remember, this has been a brief overview. If after listening to all the steps and safety concerns and possible reputation ruiners, <laughs> you still decide to make your own fuel, please find a more credible source for step-by-step -step directions because mine was just real brief in general. Also, please follow all safety instructions and wear the proper protective eyewear, chemical-resistant gloves, a respirator, splash-proof clothing, all of it. Just deck yourself head to toe in PPE. PPE is personal protective equipment. Definitely work in a very well-ventilated area. And you should also know that transporting and storing methanol is extremely hazardous. And the National Fire Code only allows two five-gallon cans to be stored in a single residential location. There have been homes burned down in the past from people involved in automotive and go-kart racing who carelessly stored a 55-gallon drum of methanol in their attached garage. If making biodiesel fuel is not for you, which it is not for me, not anymore, <laughs> there are still other actions you can take to at least reduce the amount of fuel you use. This is called hypermiling. I had never heard of this concept until Danny Totten posted a few articles in the Starting Sustainability Facebook group. So thank you, Danny. This is all of his information that I'm about to share with you. Hypermiling is a style of driving that increases your miles per gallon by about 10, 20, or 30%, which essentially lowers your gas bill. Even just saving 10% is quite easily achievable. 30%, you're going to have to work quite a bit at that one. <laughs> but hey, I love saving money, and this is a much safer alternative than making your own fuel and accidentally blowing up your garage and house. So for your hypermiling tips, I've got 10 of them. Number one, don't warm up your car. Anytime your car is running but not moving, you are wasting gas, and it really doesn't hurt a cold car to warm up while driving at low speeds. So if you're in a residential neighborhood like me, you can turn on the car, then you drive at a low speed as you work your way out of the neighborhood. Of course, we're at the very back of the neighborhood, so it is quite a drive to get out of the neighborhood, and that's perfectly fine. Number two is to minimize braking. Coast to the red lights and stop signs. Learn to time the lights. A lot of lights can be timed during rush hour so that you don't have to stop. And this will save a lot of gas. Number three is to slowly accelerate. I know that's tough. <laughs> I'm always in a hurry and it's really hard to just slowly accelerate. I've got a lead foot, so I had to work on that one quite a bit. Number four is to drive slower. Moving through air at high speeds robs fuel mileage. Per Danny, his Civic got its best miles per gallon at 50 
miles per hour. And his Subaru Forester gets its best at 40 miles per hour. But the speed limit's 55 or 60 or even 65 or 70 on the interstate, depending on where you live. These are significantly slower. Yes, yes they are, but you are much more fuel efficient. All vehicles lose miles per gallon the faster you drive above the most efficient speed. The target is to find the most efficient speed for your vehicle and drive at that rate. Number five is to pay attention to your real time miles per gallon gauge. If your car doesn't have one, you can buy one that plugs into the diagnostic port underneath your dash. Number six, overinflate your tires. For passenger vehicles and trucks, hypermilers claim you can safely inflate your tires 25% over the maximum tire pressure reading on the tire. Not the tire pressure recommended on the door, but the one that's actually on the tire itself. And if you're concerned about overinflating it so much and possibly getting a blowout, especially if you live where the roads are bumpy or full of potholes, then just overinflate about five to 10%. You will still be more efficient with your fuel. Number seven, on a really flat road, use cruise control. When there are hills, you want to use constant throttle. So your foot's basically always on the gas, just a little bit, which will cause you to slow down going up the hill, but it's gonna be more fuel efficient. Number eight, combine your trips. Your engine will be warmer when you start it for the next destination. A cold engine isn't a fuel efficient engine. So get all your trips. If you've got multiple stops, line them all up back to back to back. Number nine, remove unnecessary weight to basically help with air resistance. So if you have a roof rack and you don't use it, take it off. And number 10, when you go to buy tires, consult consumer reports and buy low rolling resistance tires. Also, if you have the money, you can buy lighter alloy rims rather than the heavy steel rims, which will take less energy to turn. Since I read Danny's post, I've been attempting hypermiling over the last two weeks. I accelerate slower when applicable. Sometimes I have to pull onto a busy highway and kind of really need to gun it. <laughs> I do know my route to work and home and know when the stop signs are, and I can let my foot off of the gas and coast towards the stop sign as much as possible. If there's a car behind me, they do get upset that I am going really slow because they get right up on my butt. <laughs> or at least I feel like they're upset at me. When there is a car behind me, I don't coast as far in advance just because I'm a people pleaser. <laughs> so it's really up to you on, on how you do that. I have not figured out my car's optimal speed for fuel efficiency quite yet. Still working on it. I am always running late in the mornings and I don't feel like that I have the leisure time to drive slower to test it out. So I have been feeling in that regards. But I do have an EcoBoost button on my car's dash and I do use that as much as possible, even before the gas prices went up. Basically, my thought is I'm going to turn on the EcoBoost and then it just stays on and I leave it alone. But sometimes my kid will take an alternative path to his car seat, climb up front and hit a whole bunch of buttons. And he does this while I'm holding his little brother or I'm loaded down with bags or a dog or whatever. Therefore, I can't get to him fast enough. And then I'll drive around for some time before I realize that the EcoBoost was turned off. That makes me mad, but oh well, so goes life. So once I recognize it, I just hit the button and turn it back on. I am getting into a better habit of checking for the EcoBoost feature. I am also notorious for missing a turn. When I see a turn coming up on the GPS and think, is it this one or the next one? And then I pass the turn and I realize, shoot, that was the one that I wanted. Now I gotta go down, turn around and come back or find an alternative route. And this always causes me to cringe because I know I'm like, I just worked so hard to save as much gas as possible. And then I missed my freaking turn. <laughs> so 
Oh, well, therefore, my advice to add to Danny's list is to slow down and know your route so you don't miss turns and go out of your way. Hopefully you have found all this information very helpful on terms on how to either save money by making your own fuel or how to reduce the amount of fuel that you use by implementing the hypermiling tips. If you are part of the Starting Sustainability Facebook group, awesome. If not, feel free to join. Once you join, you can hit the little search magnifying glass at the top of the group and you can search Danny Totten and you can search for hypermiling and it will pull up those articles that he shared if you want more information on it. And now it is time for the weekly challenge. Let me open up my case here and draw a card. It says, embrace the concept of clean beauty. Research beauty brands that are vegan, cruelty-free, and use more sustainable production methods. Awesome. Or you can be like me and just don't wear makeup at all. <laughs> well, I mean, you still need like face wash and lotion and stuff. So I guess, okay, so I guess I still do have a beauty regime or regimen, whatever the word is. Anyways, that is your weekly challenge. You can do that, guy or girl or whatever. Every, that's definitely applicable to everybody. Next time on the show, that'll be April 18th, we're going to discuss spring foraging and the importance of native plants. Now we are moving April 16th and 17th and hopefully all goes according to plan and it is a smooth process. Packing up, loading up, unloading, unpacking, and getting settled into the new house. It's all going to be a ton of work that I am just slowly dreading day by day. But So the next episode should launch April 18th. Hopefully all goes well with the moving process. Continue saving the world, Sustainer Nation. Have a wonderful, happy Easter, and I will talk to you all again next time. Have a great one. Bye. Welcome to the Realistic Sustainability Podcast, a guide to greening your life. Each week, we will explore sustainability concepts and what we can do to reduce our family's carbon footprint while growing our positive footprint. This show supports step-by-step -step progress without those extreme jump-all-in measures. So join us on Anchor or your favorite podcast platform and subscribe today.